This week on the Dan Cave, we say goodbye to the best owner in Seattle pro sports history as Paul Allen passes away and look ahead to how it affects the future of the Seahawks franchise. On the field, I'll review the team's playoff standing after their convincing win over the Raiders in London. Are the Seattle Mariners planning to employ a Brewers-esque approach to their pitching staff in 2019? We'll try to make sense of some possible early clues that change is in the wind. And the biggest Pac-12 game of the week and of the season, at least in the North Division, is in Pullman this Saturday, and so is ESPN College Game Day. We'll talk some Cougs this week. Let's step inside. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vies. So not a lot of fun this week to have to start with talking about the passing of Paul Allen. Died Monday at the age of 65. Has owned the Seahawks since 97. Owned the Trailblazers, co-founder of Microsoft. And it really came as a shock. We had gotten the news two weeks ago. He announced himself that his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma had returned. He had beaten it once before, and he said doctors are optimistic. He's going to work together with them. Obviously, he can afford the best medical care that money can buy, one of the richest men in the world. And there were no indications. Usually when when celebrities, big stars are on their deathbed, reports leak out. He's in hospice. Family members are by his side. Um, things have taken a turn for, for the worse. There was no warning, no indication between the time he announced two weeks ago that he was dealing with lymphoma once again and the announcement that he had passed on Monday. In fact, I was on Twitter Monday afternoon checking things, reading about things, mostly football-related, and then fell asleep, took a little rare afternoon nap, and woke up an hour later, checked Twitter, and news had broken. So it really came out of left field. And my immediate thoughts were how lucky we have been as Seattle sports fans to have had Paul Allen in our city and in our lives. He literally saved the Seahawks, bought them from Ken Baring when Baring was attempting to move the team to Los Angeles. The moving trucks were packed. That's how close it was. Got the stadium built. Built a beautiful stadium um, that's still considered one of the premier stadiums in the league and and really was ahead of its time and how it was built to, to encourage um, noise, staying in the stadium, trapping it in the stadium to give the home team an advantage. And in the, in the way he went about running the franchise, Pete Carroll talked at length this week about how he encouraged people. He basically hired good people, put them in position to succeed, and then allowed them to do their jobs. Which, if any of you in, in the normal workplace, if you're like me, you've worked for good bosses and bad bosses. And, and I think that's the one quality that separates good bosses is let your people, hire the right people, let them do their job. And the benefits that we received by having Paul Allen as our owner 
is we have one of the best franchises in the, in the National Football League, and they're they're built for long term success. We won a Super Bowl. We've had a parade in the city. He was committed to to keeping that as a winner. Pete Carroll this week said he wouldn't have come here if it wasn't for Paul Allen. So imagine what life would be like without him. We we may not have football at all, and and if we did, who knows what state the franchise would be in. Also, away from sports, we know what a philanthropist he was. Over $2 billion of his own money, he's already donated to charity, and um, he's signed a pledge that 50% of his net worth will go to charitable causes upon his passing. He was a remarkable man. Um, and Pete Carroll talked at length this week about, about his influence on him and his impact on getting him to Seattle and, and how people forget about this, but Pete Carroll had been in the two or three years prior to being hired by Paul Allen and the Seahawks had been courted heavily by the NFL. I believe the Atlanta Falcons came after him hard one year. I know the Arizona Cardinals did one year. But no one was ever ever able to convince Carroll that he would be allowed to do the job the way he needed to do it and have total control over structure and organizational philosophy until Paul Allen came along. The scary thing is to look into the future and wonder what's next. Because, unfortunately, there are more bad sports owners than good sports owners. And the pool with which to choose from, people that have the financial wealth to be able to afford a pro sports team, and also the passion to want to own one, and then the smarts and the wherewithal to put the right people in place and create and run a successful organization are very, very, very rare. That pool is small and it's limited and a bad owner can destroy all the goodwill and and all the good work that had been done by previous ownerships. Now, the one thing that I think we can hang on and the the reports at this point, there's, there's been no official statement from his his one younger sister, Jody, who's now in charge of the trust that the Trailblazers and the Seahawks are part of, and she is in charge of. Um, there's been no official statement from her or, or from Vulcan or from First and Goal or any of, of Allen's other interests and organizations. There was an initial report that she enjoyed the Seahawks and would want to own them. That came from a Portland writer who was writing primarily about what would happen to the Trailblazers, and it was his own personal speculation. Those reports have been refuted in the last couple of days. It sounds now as if Jody Allen has has no interest at all in owning the Seahawks and that the franchise will be sold. So the, the thing that I think we can hang our hat on and, and put some trust in is Paul Allen, obviously, was a brilliant man. And, obviously, he has known for years that his health was in question. That he may not 
stick around as long as he would like to or, or that we would have liked him to. And you can make stipulations in your will and and in all the documentation that covers how you want your wealth to be distributed, how you want your assets to be managed. So he, he, he very may well have stipulated things like we need to have local owners. The team needs to be owned by someone locally. And, and the point I want to get to is there may be even more specifics than that. And I hadn't thought of this until I was actually having a conversation with a customer at work the other day. And he was the first one that, that, that tossed this idea out to me that he may have gotten as specific as he may have already talked to some of the other people that he knows about potential ownership of the Seahawks. There may be people sitting at home right now who know that they're going to be in play and have an opportunity to be the next owner of the Seahawks. Those conversations may have already happened. If they haven't happened on that level, that specific, then certainly there there would be stipulations in place as to how he would like to see the organization move forward. The dumbest thing I've read all week is there's all of these news agencies out there reporting that the Seahawks are not in danger of of moving out of Seattle. There shouldn't be any reason to think that that the Seahawks would relocate. I I don't get that. Why would that even be a news story or a possibility? It's one of the most successful franchises in the NFL. They sell out every game. They have a massive waiting list for season tickets. They have one of the best stadiums in the league. It's one of the top 13 markets in the country. There's there's no market in the country that's in a position to take a franchise right now. I, I don't even understand why that's being reported. As a side note, at the end of a story, maybe. But there's literally headlines the last couple days. Experts think the Seahawks are safe in Seattle. Why would you even pick up a phone and call an expert? I'll tell you right now. It doesn't matter who wants to buy this team. They're not leaving Seattle. So let's, now I'm doing it. Let's stop talking about it. What'll be fascinating to see as this unfolds is, is how it does affect the future of the franchise and the direction of the franchise. Let's, let's just assume for a moment that someone fantastic comes along and buys the Seahawks. And as a side note, I will say this. Immediately, the names that come to mind that everybody throws out there are guys like Steve Ballmer and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. We have some of the richest men in the world that made their money in Seattle, live in Seattle, have a connection with the city. But here's the thing. Bill Gates has never given any indication that he has any interest in sports at all, let alone owning a sports team. And Jeff Bezos hasn't either. To my knowledge, I don't know that he gives a shit about anything sports-related. So cross them off the list. Steve Ballmer is an interesting one. He certainly can afford it. You're allowed to, to own teams in, in different sports leagues. Obviously, Allen owns the Blazers and the Seahawks. But he's a passionate basketball guy and has made that 
known his entire life with his involvement in pro basketball, his interest in trying to bring the Sonics back and then ultimately buying the Clippers. I I don't think, or I haven't seen any signs that he's a football fan. So it's probably going to be someone we're not even thinking about. And it may be a consortium, a, a group of local business people who end up owning the owner, owning the Seahawks with, with uh, managing partners, exactly the way that the Mariners are now owned with John Stanton as the majority owner, managing partner, but a group of people um, who make the purchase. But as far as how the franchise is going to be shaped, you know, these ownership things, this, this may take a while. We may not know until next season who the new owner of the Seahawks is. 2019 is Pete Carroll's final year of his contract. He'll turn 68 next September. John Schneider, the general manager, his contract runs two years beyond that. And it was well known that, that Paul Allen had, had an especially had an affinity for John Schneider. And again, there may be stipulations in his will, in his agreements that whatever the Seahawks do with the new owner, that John Schneider will be a part of it, at least through the end of his contract. If Paul Allen was fit, healthy, still here, still among us, was going to be around for a long time, Pete Carroll probably would have stuck around as long as he wanted to. Because Paul Allen has a history in all of his sports dealings of he really likes to go after the big whale and the big fish. He hired Paul he hired Mike Holmgren. He hired his first hire was Dennis Erickson, who was at the time a national championship winning coach, huge huge name. That didn't work out. So then he went for Mike Holmgren. Huge name. And then when the one year with Jim Moore didn't go well, didn't go as planned, he went after one of the biggest names on the planet, hired Pete Carroll. When reports surfaced last year that Pete Carroll was considering retirement, Paul Allen was on a personal trip, a vacation, and word is that he had, before he had a chance to talk to Carroll, had already started to put together a list in his in his mind of who he would go after if indeed Carroll stepped away. And those names reportedly were Nick Saban, Jim Harbaugh, and John Gruden. Paul Allen likes established veteran coaches and big names. The direction of the league, though, is innovative, young, forward-thinking, fresh minds. Adam Gase, Sean McVay, Mike Shanahan, Josh McDaniels. So, if things either don't progress... Or the person who ultimately is in charge of the Seahawks after ownership changes is one of those guys who just wants to have his own hire. Or is someone that Carol doesn't feel like he sees eye to eye with and doesn't want to come back after 2019. It could really impact the direction of the franchise. The new owner may be someone who wants to be more innovative and go with a young, unproven, hot name, young coach. So... 
really jumping the gun on that, but this is the way my brain thinks, and that's what this podcast is about, is I like to ask the questions that no one else is asking, and I like to look ahead, and I like to look at bigger impacts. So, again, rest in peace, Paul Allen. Um, He will definitely be missed. We are spoiled because of him, and we were lucky to have him. Now, on the field, the arrow is certainly pointing up for the Seahawks. Just three weeks ago after that Bears game, my primary topic of thought and my biggest question was, what the hell is going on with Pete Carroll? Is he coaching for his job? Has he lost his way? He was saying stupid things. He was managing the team on the field in a way that was hypocritical to um, what he had promised us they were going to get back to. It was contradictory to all the promises he made as far as the type of offense we were going to see and how physical they were going to be and how they were going to run the football. And it kind of looked like the Seahawks were potentially on the verge of the wheels falling off. But my, how things have gotten back on track because we have now seen it for four straight games, a consistent style of play. And it does match precisely what he promised us they were going to do. Three out of four wins, almost beat the Rams, should have. And now a convincing win, 27-3, over the Raiders in London. The Raiders appeared overmatched by the Seahawks. It was domination on a level that 27-3 doesn't even accurately describe. It should have been more. Seahawks shot themselves in the foot a couple of times. A couple of key penalties. Uh, turnover at, in the red zone. Interception in the end zone. It could have been 41-3. to And it, and it it's funny to me, it makes me laugh that, that throughout the week I've heard people say, well, it was just the Raiders. It was just the Raiders. Seahawks are fool's gold. Don't count your chickens. Let's wait and see how it works out. The Seahawks did what they should have done, what they were supposed to do, what we talked about as potential last week. They beat a team soundly that they should have beat soundly. And that hasn't always happened with this team. We know all about how up until the Rams game in December last year, no double-digit losses for this team in the Russell Wilson era, always played close games, no matter how good or bad the team they were playing. They would be in every single game against the good teams, but even against the bad teams, they would let them back in. So this, this is new, and this is really, really promising. Because you start to build some confidence with the young team. And now they go into a bye week, mostly healthy, get a couple of players back after the bye, and then face a really, really key stretch. And what's really particularly encouraging about this team is not just the consistency we're seeing on offense and the ability to run the football against good defensive fronts and physically dominate teams. But how well the defense is playing. This young defense, and and we asked the question a couple weeks ago, if there was a silver lining to Earl Thomas getting hurt, 
as unfortunate as it was, maybe it would allow this young defense to form their own identity, that his drama and the toxicity of his approach to his contract talks and and not practicing or practicing and him being grumpy and the disrespect he felt and all of that and removing that from the equation and getting him away from these young guys would just allow them to go out and play and let Carroll coach them the way that we know he can. And that's precisely what appears to be happening on the field. These guys are hitting hard. They're not missing assignments. The young players are developing quickly in front of our eyes. Trey Flowers gets better every week, looks like a potential star. Teams aren't challenging Tedrick Thompson, which at first I find odd, but then I think, well, maybe they see it on film. Maybe they it's not there to be challenged. The pass rush is coming along. Granted, Oakland had real issues up front on the offensive line. Seahawks with six and a half sacks in that in that game. But again, they did what they were supposed to do. They dominated that line of scrimmage. And we've seen signs even before the Oakland game against better offensive lines that the pressure was getting better. Right now, that defense is fifth in the league in points allowed, third in passing yards allowed, third in passer rating allowed, fourth in interceptions, 11th in sacks. Have have we played elite quarterbacks to this point? Not really, other than Jared Goff. Played Derek Carr, played Case Keenum, played Mitchell Trubisky, played Dak Prescott. Good quarterbacks. Not elite with elite weapons, but good quarterbacks. The test gets tougher the next couple of weeks. Coming out of the bye, playing Detroit in Detroit, Matt Stafford's played really well since that that opening week bomb where he threw five interceptions against the Jets. He's played exceptionally well since then, I think. I don't have it in front of me. I think he's thrown eight eight touchdowns, zero interceptions in the last few games. But here's the thing that I want to talk about when we look ahead to the rest of the season, and this leads to our stat of the week. Yay! It's the stat of the week! So we're going to get a little technical here. We're going to talk DVOA. And what DVOA stands for, it's a proprietary stat developed by the guys at footballoutsiders.com. And it's a defensive metric. It's a it's a defensive value over average is essentially the acronym. And what it means is it 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 looks at how teams succeed in certain situations down in distance over time. So the larger the sample size, the more accurate it gets. And it measures how a defense does against an offense and also how offenses perform against defenses. Against the average. The Seahawks right now are looking extremely good in this stat. Both overall, which is a, an aggregate of your offense and defense, and defensively. Right now, the Seahawks are ranked fourth in the NFL in DVOA. Now, just for perspective... During that three-year run, the Super Bowl year and the two years after, where the Seahawks led the the league in scoring against defensively, they were also number one in DVOA. So it's a it's a pretty clear indicator over time of how successful a defense can be and how successful an offense can be facing a defense. For example, the Kansas City Chiefs are ranked number one in the NFL right now in total aggregate DVOA 
but their defense is ranked 28th in the league. So that tells you how good their offense has been. They're ranked second. Rams are similar. Number one ranked DVOA offense in the league. Number 17 in defense, number two overall. The Seahawks are number eight overall in the NFL in total DVOA. Their offense is 18th. Their their defense is fourth. The remainder of the schedule, the last 10 games of the schedule, the Seahawks only face three teams that are ahead of them currently in total DVOA. Kansas City is number one. They play them in week 15 or week 16, game 15. The Rams are number two. They play them again in four weeks. And the Chargers are number five. Chargers are 12th defensively and third on offense. That's their second game coming out of the bye week at Detroit and then home against the Chargers. Then they go to the Rams. So they get two of those three teams in the next three games. And then they come home against Green Bay. Green Bay is 14th overall. Sixth in offense, 22nd in defense. And here's the real stat. Looking at all 10 games the Seahawks have remaining and how our offense matches up against the defenses, the highest ranked team by DVOA defensively left on the schedule is the last week of the season, the Arizona Cardinals here at CenturyLink. Outside of them... The Rams at 14 are the highest ranked team that they face. Detroit is 30th. The Chargers, as I said, are 18th. The Rams 14th. Green Bay 17th. Carolina 26th. San Francisco 21st. They get them twice. The Vikings are 26th. That's that's going to improve. That defense is going to start getting some guys healthy and start improving and look more like what we expected them to look like. Number one defense in the league last year. And then Kansas City, 28. So the Seahawks keep playing the way that they're playing on offense, running the football, controlling the clock, being efficient on offense. Russell Wilson making good decisions. Gives that young defense time to do what they're doing, which is take the ball away, hit people, make big plays, and just continue to progress and grow as the year gets along. And all indications are KJ Wright will be back after the bye as well, and that's only going to help. Now let's look at another weekly segment. Let's take a look at our couple of tweets. Each week I'll highlight a couple of tweets that I think are key about one of the teams that we're focused on and that point out something that maybe isn't being commonly, commonly talked about something that's kind of flying under the radar, something that I think really needs our attention. So anyway, here's that was a very non-articulate description of our Tweets of the Week. Tweets of the Week! Tweets of the Week! Tweets of the Week! Tweets of the Week! The first one is from Davis Sue. If you're not following him on Twitter, you should be. He's one of the best Seahawk fan Twitters there are. Um... He loves to dive deep into analytics and cap management and stats. And he makes a point this week. He said, this wide receiver group is good. 
Jaron Brown as a number four is solid. Lockett has a TD every week. None are complaining about too much running. Doug is heating up. More untapped potential. He means David Moore. And Marshall will help situationally. It's not getting a lot of publicity. It's not getting a lot of attention. This wide receiver group, which has been often criticized over the years, looks exceptionally solid. It really does. And Davis makes some great points here. We all thought the Seahawks were crazy. Maybe not all of us because we love Tyler Lockett. But they gave him a lot of money with that extension. They gave him not quite number one wide receiver money, but solid number two. And he has appeared to earn every penny of it. He's as quick and explosive as ever. His route running ability that, that was so attractive to the Seahawks coming out of college shows up every week. He's making big plays. He's scoring They even used him on a couple of fly sweeps this week, which is interesting to me and could be something that they expand on as they move forward. But he's been fantastic. Doug Baldwin finally got the targets that we're used to him getting against Oakland. Made some big catches. He says he's playing at 80%, but I kind of wish he had never said that because I don't know that we would notice a difference. Um, He looks like his old self and should have had... There were a couple balls that he made catches on that were underthrown, frankly, by Wilson that, that could have resulted in touchdowns. And then the pick in the end zone um, uh, could have been a touchdown for him as well. David Moore looks like a potential star. Uh, wins those 50-50 catch battles every week. Um, they've used him a couple of times in the short screen game and, and sweep game. And uh, his athletic ability that they've been raving about ever since they took him in the seventh round last year shows up every week now. He's turning potential into production and looks like a potential star. Uh, Brandon Marshall hasn't done much the last couple of weeks, but he will help situationally, especially in the red zone. I think he'll still get opportunities. Um, and none of them, are, <laughs> none of them are complaining about the Seahawks running the football too much. They're all team first guys. Um, I thought that was a great point uh, by Davis and wanted to include it in our Tweets of the Week. And then from Chris Clough, who has covered the Seahawks for many times, um, from the Everett Herald, he uh, he quotes Pete Carroll on the state of the Seahawks entering the bye. And this is these are Pete Carroll's words. We've totally changed. We should have won last week against the Rams, and we should have won four in a row, and it would be obvious we were on a roll right now. We can feel it. The players know it. I thought this was a key quote because... The key to any rebuild or turnaround or team building phase of any kind is confidence. The 2012 Seahawks had it. They knew they were on the verge of being really good. And they were excited to play every week because they wanted to prove to the world how good they were. And they didn't care if anyone believed them or not. They just wanted to go out and prove it. And it feels like that's how this team is coming together as well on offense and defense. Last couple of years, even when the defense was playing well and playing with that brash attitude, there was an underlying sense that they they didn't believe in their own offense, that they had some resentment that the offense wasn't performing at a level that would allow their defense to to help them win games. It sure feels like these are 53 guys that are completely bought in right now, 100%. And feeling themselves and believing in themselves. And that is a very dangerous piece of ammunition in the NFL. And the fans are starting to feel it too. Because I ran a Twitter poll this week. And I wanted to ask the question, 
assuming that at the end of the year, we all feel really good about where this team is headed, that we all feel like 2019 can be a special season. Assuming that, if I could promise you that that's how we were going to feel at the end of the year, regardless of their record, would you rather they go 9-7 and seven and sneak into the playoffs and get knocked out in the first round? Or would you rather them only win a couple of games the rest of the way, have a higher draft pick? 90% answered that they would rather make the playoffs, even if they didn't think there could be a deep run that they'd get bounced after a week. That's exciting to me. Because that translates to enthusiasm in the stadium, which helps the football team. A lot of people were saying that that the crowd in the Rams game was the loudest it's been in a couple of years. And I heard an interesting theory regarding that that I, I think holds a lot of validity. And that is because they got off to the, the bad start. 0-2, things don't look as good. Transitional year, got rid of some big-name players. Some of the bandwagon fans that jumped on a couple of years ago and got tickets because it was cool they're not into it anymore because the passion isn't there. And so they were selling their tickets. Selling them to the passionate fans who have wanted to be at the games but don't have tickets and couldn't get them because they were too expensive. Interesting theory. Let's talk about the Mariners. Uh, briefly, because it's we're really kind of still in that dead spot. Uh, the divisional series are in full, swings, it's full swing now. Um, we should have a World Series matchup here in a matter of days. So not a lot going on. But watching the Brewers in their series against the Dodgers, it's pretty fascinating to see how they've managed their pitching staff. Um, employing a little bit of the tactics that the Tampa Bay Rays and Oakland A's did earlier this year with starting bullpen guys, relying on long relievers, playing bullpen matchups, Really forward thinking, not relying on your traditional starting pitcher trying to get you through five, six, seven innings and then turning it over to your late inning bullpen. And are there some signs, are there clues that maybe the Mariners are planning on employing that kind of approach themselves? Mariners fired Todd Stottlemyre two weeks ago. And by all indications, Stottlemyre did an outstanding job with the pitching staff the last couple of years. Took took guys like Wade LeBlanc off the scrap heap and and got them to perform at a level higher than they ever had before. Marco Gonzalez took a huge step forward this year into being a frontline starter. Have to give credit to the pitching coach for that. Um, a lot of the mix and match things that they've done the last couple of years. Last year with all the injuries when they had to call guys up from AAA and get production out of them. Todd Solomon is going to land on his feet. He'll be a pitching coach for someone elsewhere. It wasn't as if... I mean, the Mariners finished fifth in the American League in pitching. So it wasn't like he was a disaster. And Jerry DePoto talked about how one of the reasons that they, they parted ways, he implied that Stottlemyre wasn't on board with a new direction that they're taking in their approach. The Mariners don't have the payroll, the money to be able to go after top starting pitchers. They're not going to be going after Patrick Corbin or Dallas Keuchel. So they got to figure out a different way, right? Could it be that they're thinking about doing it the way the A's did down the stretch when their starters got hurt or Tampa Bay did during the season? And Tampa Bay used it effectively, got themselves back in the wildcard race at the end of the year. Milwaukee last night started Wade Miley against the Dodgers. He pitched a one batter. 
and then they replaced him. And he'll start again in game six tonight. Weird, right? The idea is that you try to take advantage of matchups. You play a certain team that's heavy right-handed. You bring a right-handed power arm in in out of your bullpen to start the first inning or two to get through that order once, and then you switch it up so they're not seeing the same pitcher multiple times. Is that what the Mariners are planning on doing? Is that why they got rid of Todd Stottlemyre? Would it make sense given the fact that starting pitching is going to be a weakness again? They're not going to have the ammunition to go after big names on the free agent market. The rest of the free agent market doesn't look that exciting. There's nobody in the system who's ready. It's it's a question that I'm asking. The answer, I believe, is I, I don't think that's the way they're going to go. I don't think so. And, and the reason I don't think so, and I hope not, is because there are a lot of potential issues with that. Wade Miley didn't sound too happy after the game yesterday that that's how he's being used. He just basically said, it's not my place. It's not my place to make those decisions. But he didn't sound too happy. You would have a really hard time attracting any free agent starting pitchers of any kind to come here if they weren't sure how they were going to be used if they were going to be used that inconsistently. I think there are also some issues in preparation, both mentally and physically, getting guys ready for pitching one inning every three days, sometimes three innings. I don't know if that works. I, I think I think what DePoto's talking about in regard, regards to Stottlemyre has more to do with use of analytics, use of data, how to approach hitters, uh, and some training techniques possibly, um, how to get guys ready between starts. Um, DePoto may think that there's more of an opportunity to get something out of Felix Hernandez in the last year of his contract than Stoudemire was able to get out of him. Maybe um, his relationship with Felix wasn't great. So it's just something to keep an eye on. Um, it's something I wanted to throw out there and ask. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, it's a hard thing to wrap your head around when you watch it happening. Um, so... We'll see how things go uh, a couple of weeks from now when we can start making uh, start making some plans and looking at uh, particular names, guys, guys that are available, guys that the Mariners might go after and how they're going to build that pitching staff next year because there's a lot of uncertainty there. All right, we haven't talked a lot of Huskies or Cougars yet um, on this show. I, I'm a Coug, um, class of 91, graduated from Washington State, grew up a Husky though, so I'm always interested in how their program's going and I'm not one of those fans that you know a lot of Cougar fans and Husky fans want nothing but disaster for their rival team they they want you know Husky fans want the Cougs to be 0-10 heading into the Apple Cup and vice versa not everyone thinks that way but many do I've never understood that (laughs) to me what good is a rivalry if if the other team sucks because then beating them doesn't mean anything. Um, nobody expected the Washington State Cougars to be to be in play for a New Year's Day bowl game or a major bowl game. Maybe, maybe if they figured out what they were going to do at quarterback after the death of Tyler Helinski, they would be able to eke out six wins and get to a small bowl. But because of Alex Grinch leaving 
after running that defense for the last three years going to Ohio State because of all the attrition and Hercules Mata'afa leaving early for the NFL and how how inexperienced and undersized they were up front on defense and with Luke Falk graduating and Holinsky's death, there was so much uncertainty and so much youth, so many young receivers. Uh, three of the, the five starting offensive linemen graduated from last year. It was a reason to think that this was a little bit of a transition year for the Cougars. But two things have happened to change that. Tracy Clays was a genius hire by Mike Leach to run the defense. And that defense has exceeded all expectations. And they've been terrific. So that's keeping Washington State in games. Meanwhile, Gardner Minshew, the transfer from East Carolina, the one-year graduate transfer, has not just exceeded expectations, but I think it's time to start talking about where he fits in in the history of WSU quarterbacks. And there have been some great ones, obviously. Jack Thompson, Drew Bledsoe, Tim Rosenbaugh, Ryan Leaf, Jason Gesser. He's only going to play one season when all is said and done. But he's putting together one of the best seasons a Cougar quarterback ever has, leading the nation in passing yards. Here's his stat line so far. Completing 69% of his passes, 215 out of 313. 2,422 yards. Almost eight yards per attempt. 19 touchdowns, five interceptions. He has more passing yards than Will Greer, who's going to go in the first round. Than Herbert from Oregon, who's going to go in the first round. And as much as we all love Luke Falk, and as many records as Luke Falk holds, in not just WSU record books, but the Pac-12, Minshew is playing at a level higher than Luke Falk. Falk was kind of a frustrating guy the last couple of years. Something happened to him at the end of his junior year. I think it goes back to that Colorado game, but his confidence wasn't there. He was hesitant. He wasn't sure of himself. He wouldn't throw the ball into tight windows. He wouldn't throw the 50-50 ball. He held onto the ball way too long. Last year, Luke Falk was sacked 39 times. Only two quarterbacks in the entire country were sacked more. And remember, Falk missed a game and a half. Thirty-nine sacks. Minshew's been taken been sacked five times. And that's not just because the offensive line's playing well, because they are, but it's a credit to him. Here's Gardner Minshew. Here's my initial scouting report of Gardner, Gardner Minshew after uh six games so far. Uh strong arm, strong enough arm, NFL strength, enough to make all the throws. He's accurate to all levels. He has great mechanics. Great mechanics. His footwork is phenomenal. And as he sits in the pocket, he he has himself mechanically ready to make any throw to any level. He's balanced, and that works together with a, a really quick release. He doesn't stare receivers down. He's willing to go to his secondary option, sometimes his third and fourth option. And here's the thing that I think really sets him apart from fault. He's fearless. He is not afraid. He has confidence in his arm. And he he knows he can make every throw. And he trusts his young receivers. A lot of people attribute Falk's 
drop off the last year and a half to losing some receivers. River Craycraft um, being his his primary favorite target, and he never really recovered from that. Minshew's playing with a bunch of receivers he never knew until March. Not even March. I think he I think he got to town in June. Not to mention how how young many of them are. A lot of sophomores and freshmen and freshmen running around there running routes for him. And he trusts them. He trusts his arm and he trusts them and he trusts his ability. Um, the ex- expectation was that because of that, he was going to throw more interceptions than he has to this point, but only five. Um, I think that this team, assuming that they're going to continue to progress over the next few weeks, is better equipped to compete with the Huskies in the Apple Cup than any Luke Falk team was. He just wasn't built to beat the Huskies in the way they play defense. And this is a big weekend in Pullman because if you haven't heard, ESPN is bringing college game day to Pullman for the first time in history. And this has been a long time coming. You, Most of you know the story. 15 years ago, the Cougars started a movement to make sure that every single college game day set, there would be a big giant crimson WSU logo flag flying in the background. And the logistics of that whole process are amazing. And there have been a couple of close calls where they didn't think they were going to get the flag delivered there on time. Um, but the the amount of effort that goes into figuring out where game day is going, figuring out who's in the area that can they can deliver the flag to, getting it there, getting it waved. And ESPN has been on the record the last couple of years as saying they would love to come to Pullman for game day to reward Cougar fans for that. They just didn't really have a reason to. There were some close calls. There, there are a couple of times over the last couple of years where word would get out that hey if the if this happens this week then next week game day is on the on the schedule and the Cougs would either lose or or another team would lose that needed to win well everything fell into place this week uh Auburn losing uh took them out of the picture Oregon beating UW sets up Oregon at WSU in Pullman this week. Oregon's ranked 12th in the country now after beating the Huskies last week in Eugene. WSU moved up to 25th coming off a bye week. And neither team has a loss in the Pac-12 North. The winner of this game controls their destiny in the Pac-12 North moving forward. And if the Cougars should win this game, they then turn around and play Stanford on the road the next week. So the next two weeks for the Cougars in particular can dictate how the Pac-12 North goes. And so Husky fans are going to have their eye on this game as well um, because they're going to be looking to get back into the Pac-12 North um, depending on what happens with this game too. Obviously, if Oregon wins it, then it's out of the Huskies' hands to some extent because they already have a loss against them, but they still play WSU at the end of the year. So you kind of, you kind of wonder if the Huskies are sort of pulling for the kooks in this game. But uh, it's going to be a fun game. Kickoff is 4.30 on Saturday, and uh, depending on what happens with the game, uh, this could be a special season moving forward for WSU in a year that nobody expected there to be a special season. Uh, That's going to do it for this podcast. I kind of think it was a special podcast, you know? Um, You know, really trying to uh, build this thing and develop it each week to be more interesting, more entertaining. to have it formatted and paced in a way that um, is enjoyable for you to listen to. I would love to get your feedback. 
Um, if you are using the Anchor app to listen to this, and I can see by the analytics that some of you are, please leave me voice messages. I can use them in the show, and I would love to inject some of that in the show. Ask me your questions. Give me your takes on anything uh, Seahawks, Mariners, Huskies, Cougar-related. Um, obviously, follow me on Twitter, at Seahawks Forever. Um, interact with me there. And then my email, the Dan Cave Show at gmail.com. So bye week for the Seahawks. Huge week for the Cougs. And another week off for the Mariners. So next week we will look back at that WSU-Oregon matchup. See what it means for the Cougs. See how it affects the Huskies moving forward. And we'll talk some more about possible reports regarding Seahawks ownership and start getting ready for them coming off a bye against the Detroit Lions. Thank you for listening. That's this week's Stand Coast.